0: Welcome to the New Books Network. There have been a number of books in recent months warning of the dangers of ultra-processed food. Uh, Kimberly Wilson's is called Unprocessed, How the Food We Eat is fueling Our Mental Health Crisis. And uh, welcome to you.
1: Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: So, so tell us, I mean, the basics, first of all, um, ultra-processed foods, how do you define them?
1: I really lean on the NOVA classification, which separates food products into four categories from group one, which is kind of minimally processed whole foods, uh, through to food ingredients, through to processed foods, and then ultra processed foods. And though it's a very long definition, the NOVA classification would say broadly that ultra processed foods are those which are generally sold ready to eat, ready to heat, and or where there is an ingredient or a process that you wouldn't come across in a domestic kitchen setting. So that includes things like flavourings and emulsifiers and processes like extrusion, things that you just couldn't do at home.
0: Yeah. Well, when when you say ready to eat and ready to heat, I mean, you know, a carrot would would meet that definition, but that's definitely unprocessed, isn't it?
1: Well, it wouldn't meet the definition of having a process um, or an ingredient that you couldn't find in your own home.
0: Right. So that's the key thing. Uh, So, so, well, let's just go through them one by one. And and, why don't you start by telling us what NOVA is? You know, where does NOVA come from?
1: So NOVA isn't it's not an acronym. It's just the the name that the Brazilian research team gave to the classification system that they developed to try to understand, try to kind of put a bracket around the complexity of the food environment. So um, NOVA is just the name that they gave for the system.
0: And that's right. And as you say, there are four categories: so unprocessed or minimally processed. So that would be my carrot. And what else would fall under that category?
1: Things like uh, cuts of meat, uh, milk, you know, fruits and vegetables, whole grains, th- those kinds of products.
0: That's that's the unprocessed or minimally processed. And then you've got this category of food ingredients, uh, meaning and what and why is that relevant?
1: Well, uh, food ingredients would be things like vinegars, uh, salt, sugar, things I, not- products that are extracted really from group one foods that you'd use in your kitchen to make group one foods into a meal so um, a carrot by itself perhaps isn't particularly delicious but a carrot that is cooked in a little butter and sprinkled with salt becomes uh, much more palatable so uh, group two foods are the foods that you would use in order to make group one foods a meal
0: you then get onto processed and ultra processed so tell us talk us through that
1: Sure. So processed foods would be foods like uh, things that are canned, things that have maybe uh, salt and sugar added to them. So canned tomatoes, canned fish, uh, things that have been through other processes like a bag of frozen broccoli will have been, you know, rinsed and chopped and frozen and and then packaged. Um, So those sorts of combinations where you've added a group two food into your group one food to produce a product that does have some level of processing that allows an extended life uh, shelf life so something like salted nuts uh, and maybe some processed meats um those sorts of things
0: yes because right so i see i didn't know that so so a salted nut is salted partly to make it last longer is it
1: uh yes it will do it will help to um to some degree repel bacteria Okay,
0: so a processed, uh, yeah, a salted peanut. Then let's say would be a processed food, and then the ultra-processed is just much more. Is that right, or is there a, is there a much clearer distinction?
1: Um, so a processed food would be something you know, and again, these there there's a variety, but largely a food that has. Added ingredients that are, have come from largely chemical processes, so things like flavorings, um, emulsifiers, artificial aromas added, that sort of thing, um, as well as uh, foods that you just absolutely couldn't make at home from because of the particular process um, that has been used.
0: Right, you said process. Those are the ultra processed, aren't they? they the, the ones you just described, the yeah. emulsifiers, yeah. So, so. Uh, Now we know what uh, ultra-processed foods consist of, talk us through the link with mental health, because... You know, others have written about the effect on health, but the distinct thing you're saying is is mental health. So what what can you tell us about that?
1: We know that there are some key nutrients that are absolutely essential for brain development in utero, so during pregnancy. Um, One of those is iodine, which the World Health Organization calls, you know, the leading cause of preventable brain damage worldwide. We know that when there is insufficient iodine during gestation that we have chronically long term suppressed IQ in children and uh you know that's been well established it's the reason that there's Uh, salt iodization in the US and and on the continent. But um, researchers found in the UK that 67% of UK women, UK pregnant women were iodine deficient. So we have a well established nutrient that is essential for development, that is well known, well understood, cheap and and easily fortified, that most pregnant women in the UK are deficient in. Um, And I think where the conversation with processed foods does come in is that by definition when you process a food you you kind of deplete it of its nutrients you do during processing of flour you lose the folic acid you lose the magnesium that's why white flour in the UK is fortified with these nutrients they're putting back in the nutrients that are taken out but a those nutrients aren't quite as uh, bioavailable as they would be in the original whole food but also we have such a low intake of whole foods that we have these widespread nutritional deficiencies that are affecting essential brain development and function.
0: Mm. So is there any evidence that this is new? You know, that 50 years ago, 100 years ago, that there wouldn't have been these deficiencies?
1: There's some, yeah, I think there is some evidence. So we certainly see, uh, if we take animal trials where they actively deplete say a pregnant mouse mother of omega-3 fatty acids you see a 50 percent reduction in connectivity in the pup's hippocampus Um, and the hippocampus is a part of the brain that is essential for learning and memory and then whilst you can't use that kind of paradigm in in humans when they look at correlations when they look at um the comparison between mothers who have a diet or a blood level high in omega-3 versus those that have lower and scan their babies' brains, you see these uh, similar differences. So smaller regional brain volume, smaller overall vol- volume, less connectivity in the brains of the babies of the mothers had, who had lower intakes Of omega-3 fatty acids and iodine. I think what's also relevant to the conversation is the reversal of the Flynn effect. So the Flynn effect is the observation that since records began, you know, through the course of the 19th century, global IQs have been increasing, and that has been attributed largely to three factors. So uh, one being less exposure to neurotoxins like lead. You know, taking those out of pipes and, and so forth. The second is better education. And the third is improved nutrition. Uh, But since the 90s, in westernised countries like the UK, like Denmark, Norway, Germany, IQs have been falling. And the research teams certainly attribute at least some of that to poorer diets, that we're not giving our brains what they need to develop well and therefore work well.
0: I mean, it it is paradoxical that... You know, this food, the processed food, involves expense in processing, right? I mean, it, it must cost money to to do this to the food. It leaves one thinking, why would companies be spending money on you know making food less nutritious? And, and basically, that comes back to the point about making it last, does it? Is that the commercial imperative on this? <laughs>
1: A little bit but it's actually more that these kind of core foods that make up ultra processed foods things like sugar and wheat flour are the kinds of crops that are largely subsidized so it's actually very cheap to produce sugar beet and sugar cane and you are always going to get more money from a product that you can add value to so if you take a bushel of wheat and try to sell it as whole wheat you have you know one price structure for it, but if you separate that into its derivatives, if you have white flour and wheat bran and bran oil, you can sell those off separately. So you increase your ability to make money on those food, on those products. And then if you combine those, um, you have into a food product that is you know, highly palatable, very tasty, um, has a long shelf life, is very convenient, then you have an opportunity to to make more money than you would on, on any whole food.
0: Mm. Now, in, in terms of the mental health effects, you've you've taken us through some of the effects really on, on you know, in utero and on yeah, infants and young people, mm. there's, there's an immediate effect. Uh, you also talk in the book about much longer term uh, effects over a lifetime and a Mm. a lifespan and and in particular dementia. What what can you uh, tell us about that?
1: So uh, dementia is the leading cause of death in the UK and um, what I think most people don't appreciate is that it's not largely driven by genetics. Most people will think if my parents had it, if my grandparents had it, then I'm likely to get it because it must be in the genes or or just bad luck. But actually, less than 5% of dementia is genetically driven. And the vast majority of dementia is what's considered, this was called sporadic, which means it is a combination of lifestyle and, and bad luck. Um, there are 12 known modifiable risk factors for um for dementia and i suppose the other thing to say is it's also not simply a feature in the in the uk of us living longer because we know that there are older populations very close to us so italy greece who have older populations but where dementia is something like the ninth seventh or ninth cause of of death so there seems to be something about the uh, environmental modifiable risk factors of the uk population which is leading to this greater vulnerability to dementia and about 50 percent of those known risk factors that are listed by the kind of global lancet commission are dietary related they are things like um your waist circumference, your BMI, your you know the quality of your diet, those sorts of things have a really important effect on your risk and certainly at midlife um, on your risk of dementia and so with rising rates of what's called young onset dementia, which is where people are diagnosed before the age of sixty five we really and without any cure, without any really effective disease modifying. Uh, medications, we really do need to be thinking quite seriously about how we inform, educate and empower people to reduce their risk through these no modifiable risk factors.
0: It's very interesting that you uh, draw the comparison between the UK, Italy, and Greece. So can you just t- t- talk a bit more about that? Because I-, I think you say in the book that the US has the most of these um, you know, dangerous foods, and then the UK and then others. Would that be right?
1: Yes. Yeah, so um, the intake in the UK for the average adult is about 55% of their diet is ultra-processed foods. And the US is just ahead of us at, at 57%. So we're not really far behind. But Italy, for example, has something like 14% of the average adult's diet is composed of these ultra processed foods. There's much more of a food culture of, of whole foods and a greater intake of, of fruits and vegetables. So we have a diet that is, is much more Americanized rather than, I guess, uh, similar to our, our European neighbors.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? Because people like you call for education. You know and say that's the solution. We, uh, we've just got to understand this better and and behave accordingly. Actually, these cultural factors probably you know are more influential. Oh, they absolutely
1: are. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, so, I, don't, I, I don't think education, we know that education isn't isn't the fix. When you ask people, people often believe that the, the most important intervention for behavior change is education. But we know that all that education does is to improve someone's motivation to change. It doesn't necessarily significantly change their behavior. The thing that changes behavior is changes in the environment, changes in in what's called um, the decision or the choice architecture, the way that the environment shapes our decision making, is the thing that makes the biggest difference.
0: So you think the solution lies in what government regulation as it, of the food industry to provide foods for the population that are just healthier
1: i think that should be absolutely part of of the response Uh, i think food and food culture is a complex issue i don't think there is a kind of one magic silver bullet that's going to fix it for everyone but we know absolutely for example that certain types of advertising directed at vulnerable populations like children and adolescents greatly increase the likelihood of them choosing these foods. Um, And of course, we know that works because otherwise food companies wouldn't pay the money to advertise to them. And if we understand that humans aren't rational decision makers, we simply, we're not sitting down and making clear, uh, conscious decisions based on the best available evidence. We are shaped by the environment in the decisions that we make. Then I think there is an onus on the people who have the power to shape the environment to take some responsibility for that
0: yeah there's one obvious link between food and 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 mental activity maybe not mental health but uh, Mm. yeah, which is when you get hungry you get stroppy don't you (laughs) I mean it just happened (laughs) you know people who are hungry are irritable Mm. Uh, so is that the beginning of the link or is that totally unrelated do you think of To mental health is that a relevant consideration?
1: Um, I think it is when we get into issues of hunger. So what you're describing is what is colloquially called hanger, and and it's been considered a a kind of colloquial, uh, incidental, kind of idiosyncratic issue. But there is evidence to support that it is a real phenomenon. So when they ask long-term married couples to give to describe how hungry they are at a certain time point, and also how angry they are their hunger accounts for about 50 percent of the variance in their in their anger or their aggression or their level of frustration hunger or high cortisol because when you become hungry you have a greater release of cortisol because part of what cortisol the stress hormones job is to do is to release sugars into your bloodstream so it's helping to fuel your brain but it's also creating a state of agitation Um, and that cortisol also correlates to how likely you are to stick pins into a voodoo doll of your partner so we see these relationships (laughs) these extraordinary studies Um, we see these relationships between hunger and irritability and that's really pertinent when we think about um, the level of child hunger in the UK because what it potentially means is that Children who have less ability to either understand or regulate their emotions, who might be feeling, who might be hungry and who might be feeling these experiences of agitation, restlessness, listlessness. They might start kicking the table or answering back. There is certainly, I think, a group of children who are expressing behaviours linked to their hunger rather than what would be considered kind of naughtiness. And so there are a group of children who might be suffering you know they might be put into detention or sent out of class because their behavior when actually their behavior is an outcome of their hunger so i think it's it's really relevant there because then you get this kind of downstream consequence of the teachers um, impression of the children have a, have a, has a very strong impact, uh, unconscious in in the teacher often, um, on their likelihood to support the child and the child's ability to thrive. If a child gets labelled as naughty, often that label can follow them through the school system. If you end up in detention, or if you end up kind of disenfranchised from school, then obviously that's going to have an impact on your your academic outcomes and therefore your life outcomes so it absolutely is relevant in in that part of the conversation yes
0: yeah and, and maybe your mental health down the road but it's, it's, a, it's a very different set of linkages you're describing there from you know earlier in the interview you're talking about you know the, the lack of crucial things to eat and that leading to you know clear mental health effects and and this more sort of social deprivation sort of an element to it
1: well, there is there is also, I mean, that's kind of acute hunger, but we absolutely know that chronic hunger, so the most deprived children that we'd be thinking of, we know that chronic hunger is a toxic stress. So when you have, and a toxic stress is a stressor that you do not have the time to uh, recover from. And we know that uh, when you get hungry and your cortisol goes up, long-term elevated cortisol is kind of corrosive to the brain so it actually can harm brain development so certainly mm. chronic hunger is is absolutely associated with poorer brain uh, development and brain function
0: you've described some of the ways that scientists have tried to test for this you know different populations mm. uh, different places different time periods there's one specific population you talk about it's quite interesting because it because it, cause it, it um, you know, is so distinct and it's the prison population. Mm -hmm. What do the studies about prisoners tell us?
1: Um, So the prison studies are a very interesting group of studies. And at the moment, there are four, there are others that are underway and they follow a very similar paradigm. So it's all been done in male prisoners so far. And what they do is to take a group of men, randomise them into two groups. One group gets a placebo pill and the other gets a, a broad spectrum multi pill, so a vitamin and mineral uh, tablet for usually somewhere between eight to 12 weeks. And what they have found as an outcome of these randomized placebo-controlled trials is that improved nutritional status is associated with, on average, a 30% reduced incidence of, um, of, of aggression, of violence. And what's really interesting about that is a the magnitude of the outcome so that you would expect different uh, research teams to get slightly different results but there's a very similar magnitude of effect on all of these populations and the studies have been done in the us the uk the netherlands and singapore at this point also the 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 speed of with which we see that improvement and um and the fact that it's an RCT, which is considered the gold standard in terms of, of causality, is a, a really interesting, I, I think, set of of studies for us to think about.
0: It seemed to me, reading some of the studies in your book, you know, the, the correlations there, but the, the the causation is not clear, mm-hmm. or not, you know, not really established. Uh, so talk talk us through that issue.
1: Actually, these are comparative these are well-controlled studies they have a placebo they have this control group and they show the same magnitude of outcome
0: yes but again they they they, they, they show correlation don't they i mean to, to to get the causation we would need to know what's happening in the brain uh, you know for example when iodine is deficient and, and what's actually going on you know at a, at a very basic level which Causes it, it's Like the smoking argument. I mean, the correlation was there long before uh, the science could prove the causation.
1: What what they have is indications of causation. What they don't have is an understanding of the underlying mechanism. So they know that the difference is down to the nutrients because that was the only exposure that was different that was the only thing that was different between these two groups they were the same age they were uh you know from the same demographic background they were all men all of these exposures were similar the only thing that was different during this period of the trial was the exposure to nutrients or not so actually they know it was something to do with the nutrients but what they don't know is the exact mechanism What, what what was it was it the b vitamins that helped Uh, with their neurotransmitters was it you know some other effect on you know did it help them to sleep and therefore they were better able to manage their emotions they don't know the mechanism but they do know that it was a nutrient
0: is there an issue with people becoming too concerned about this issue of processed and unprocessed food by which i mean there's so much anxiety in some individuals about not eating processed or ultra processed food that they end up with a pretty unbalanced diet and actually doing themselves some harm. Are you aware of that being an issue?
1: I I think that's a possibility. I think most people, to be fair, aren't really aware that the foods they are eating are what would be considered processed or ultra processed. So much of ultra processed and processed foods have become a normal part of the food environment and of the food culture. You know, it's 55% of what we eat now, that it's just considered by most people to be food. I think there absolutely, there will be some individuals who are kind of more vulnerable to uh, anxious issues around around what they should or shouldn't eat, which is why really there should be kind of clearer information, I think, from the government and trusted sources on actually this is what we should be doing. I think the food environment is, is very complex and is very complicated, and I think uh, that's why... I certainly try to avoid kind of moral language around food. I don't say that things are bad or that, you know, you're making bad choices. But I think, yeah, there will be there will be some people who are more vulnerable to those sorts of things as as there always have been.
0: What about uh, veganism and uh, the people having yeah, quite restricted diets for whether it's for moral reasons or yeah, mm-hmm. may, may not be may not be a health driven thing? Uh, what's the impact of that?
1: So it really depends on the kind of the quality of a of the vegan diet that the person is on a well planned well-organized vegan diet is absolutely fine for health Um, if the person goes into their diet knowing that there are certain nutrients that are more easily or sometimes exclusively found in animal foods and that they find a way to balance those to compensate for those for example b12 you have to if you're vegan you have to supplement with b12 to make sure that you're you're getting enough then that's absolutely fine. Um, I think the issue is that often the conversation around veganism is reduced down to basically two nutrients, which is iron and protein. You know, the argument is often, you know, meat is only good for iron, is only needed for protein, and you can get those from plant sources. and, And of course, that's true. But what's often missed is animal foods are a good source of iodine, choline, omega-3 fatty acids, the, the long preformed ones, um, DHA, which you cannot synthesize from ALA, which is a, a vegan a plant-based omega-3. Um, and so the issue is that people might be entering into dietary patterns that might be depleting their brains of essential nutrients without knowing. So it's, it's kind of an issue of informed consent. De- eat how you like, but know what you might be missing out on so that you can look after yourself.
0: I, I was just wondering, exactly, I was just wondering whether there have been studies showing that, yeah, I guess badly managed veganism can lead to mental health issues.
1: I'm not sure that there has been a kind of cons- uh, a consensus out- output on that as yet. I think often that might be because the vegans who volunteer for certain trials might be the kind of more organised vegans rather than... Um, you know, the people who are less com- happy or confident that they have a healthy balanced diet. And, and then the other thing is that there is a rise in veganism. So it was a f- fairly small part of the population up to a few years, years ago, but now it's a greater proportion of the population and it's largely women of childbearing age. So there it is, I think, a question about what, what their nutritional status is going to be. Certainly as a as and when they enter pregnancy, if they choose to become parents, um, and whether that's going to have an impact uh, on the brain health outcomes of their offspring.
0: It's interesting to think about developing countries in this respect, because I I guess many people living in developing countries will be eating unprocessed or minimally processed foods. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there are so many other factors involved. Have there been studies on what the impact of that is on mental health? Because, I mean, on, on health outcomes... Yeah, in many developing countries, there are there are much shorter life expectancies, and, and diet as part of that story.
1: Yes, um, and so certainly, you know, the, the iodine story is very well established in Southeast Asia, and kind of, and particularly, what was interesting is in the central states of America, because iodine is found in seaweed and fish and seafood. The central states of America were largely at risk of goiter and iodine deficiency, and what they found was what, that when they introduced iodized salt was this rapid increase in the Flynn effect that they gained within a couple of years, the equivalent of about a decade's worth of IQ improvements. Um, similarly, we see a correlation in um, the fish intake in, say, places like Japan and um and Norway, and reduce risks of dementia. Now, there are other dietary exposures associated with that, but that also seems to be the case uh, globally, which is those who have a dietary pattern that is minimally processed tend to have these better long-term brain health outcomes.
0: My father used to tell me in mid-Wales, back in what must be in the 1920s, his mother would always give him a fish meal before an exam. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> she she was right she was onto something <laughs>
0: yeah uh, so, so well uh, when you look ahead on this I mean it seems to me what you're saying is that the future of this issue is really dependent on on governments and the the extent to which they're prepared to control what companies you know f- producing food do
1: yes I I, I think so I think Leaving Well, first of all, as I said earlier, we know that individual education doesn't change things as much as we intuitively think it does. And what we need, because this is a population level uh, issue, what we need is cultural change. And you can't leave cultural change down to individuals. It's too sporadic, it takes too long, and it's too much at risk of, of reverting back to where it was. We know that cultural change happens when there is a larger shift in the environment and that can only come from some kind of government intervention now whether that is tighter regulations whether that is mandatory reformulation, so getting the food companies to put more nutrients into ultra processed foods whether that is improving access to free school meals subsidizing fruit and vegetables I don't know but I think if we're going to see a widespread change there does need to be a concerted and coherent government response on
0: this issue. Yeah, I just wondered whether you think that the response so far has been rational. There's, yeah, sugar is a big issue, isn't it? And mm, and, mm-hmm. and, and there has been an effort to, yeah, to some degree to control the amount of sugar that particularly children mm-hmm. are, are consuming. I mean, if you were, yeah, Minister of Food, <laughs> w- would, you, would you be concentrating on that or would you have other
1: priorities? Um, I think my priority, because I think this is where you get the most return on your investment, would be pregnancy and early life. Because the way that you eat across your lifespan is is largely stable. So really getting people into healthier habits is early on is key to then having a healthier adult. And so my personal preference and where I think the government would get the biggest bang for their buck would be um, supporting healthy pregnancies only nine percent of women in the uk enter pregnancy without a behavioral or um kind of lifestyle risk factor so we largely enter pregnancy in, in not the healthiest state to start with then there are these broad Uh, common nutritional deficiencies um, that can be easily corrected um, and that could just be through uh, supplementation through uh, you know an adequate supplement um, that was evidence-based and ideally available for free because you know the cost of that supplement would certainly be recouped in lower child mortality we know simply that an omega-3 supplement reduces the risk of preterm birth by up to 42 percent so the cost of that supplement is is recouped very quickly by lower uh, child mortality better outcomes for mother and baby and then making sure that healthy fruits and vegetables and healthy food was more accessible earlier on in life would get people on the right track so that is where i would focus my attention
0: but you'll be up against commercial interests and, and, and lobbying, right? <laughs>
1: yes. and, and, and you know <laughs> I wonder
0: I wonder how you're gonna cope with, 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 with all the um, you know, the ferocious pressure that politicians come under not mm. to do this kind of thing
1: yes um and and that is the issue that is and that will always be the issue that lobbyists are paid to produce briefing papers that are in the interests of the companies that they represent and what it would really take is a i think a very bold individual or group of individuals to say that though this position might not be popular with industry, it is in the best long-term benefit of the population. And that includes things like GDP and the UK staying competitive with the rest of of the world. Um, If we're going into an information economy, what we need is brains that are functioning well enough to be able to process that information. So we need some, some bold and brave and conscientious individuals to say, Despite the pressure from industry and despite my the risk of being unpopular, I'm willing to push this forward for the long term. And they probably wouldn't get credit for it within their career. It would be benefits a generation to come. But I'm willing to do that for the long term benefit of the country.
0: So there we are. That's your pitch for minister. Of <laughs> uh, but,
1: but I just
0: actually just hearing you say all that makes me wonder when the Chinese. Government looks at these issues. I don't know if you, you're aware of any study on this or any comment on it. It'd be quite interesting to know because mm-hmm. they're in a much better position actually to change culture from the mm-hmm, top. You know, mm-hmm. just say this is how it's going to be. Sure. don't worry about the <laughs> lobbyists and all that. Uh, so, is is there evidence that you know this is another democratic failure? Really, yeah, you know, that, 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 that there is a <laughs> capacity for these more top-down governments to to impose a culture that would be to the benefit of the population?
1: Um, I wouldn't know about that, but I will certainly go and have a look now and see.
0: Mm. Mm. I mean, there are, some, there are some dictatorial systems where I'm sure the diet is, you know, is, is terrible. I mean, North Korea, obviously, mm-hmm, would, be, mm. would, would, would be the case. But if, if there is some more money in the system, in these semi-authoritarian systems, mm. uh, maybe maybe they do have more capacity to deal with this.
1: Yeah, perhaps. But, uh, but also, it's... it's Again, it's more about informed consent, like letting people know what the deal is. Only at that point, only when people are appraised of the full information of the impact of the majority of their diet on their brain health, can we even claim that people are making a choice. Only when they know how influenced they are by advertising can we really say that someone is making a choice? Otherwise, it's really a kind of psychological manipulation. So it's really about just trying to level the playing field. Like, what we need is lobbyists for cabbages. (laughs) (laughs)
0: there's no money in that. (laughs) Well, well, anyway, uh, Kimberly Wilson, thank you very much. You've spoken like a true Democrat. (laughs) And uh, we're very grateful for your, you know, helping us understand what's obviously a very important issue. So thank you very much.
1: Thank you. My pleasure.